We also have a treat for those of us that are here in the sanctuary, and that is we've got a guest with us this morning. So Brian, I will call you up. Our overseer, Brian Hirschberger, is here. Uh, he and I are twinning in our nice black pullover sweaters, uh, nonetheless. Uh, but we are w- uh, glad to have you with us, Brian, and want to give you an opportunity to share with us a little bit this morning. So would you join me in welcoming our overseer, Brian Hirschberger? It is so good to be here uh, with you today. It's been way too long, but I have joined you a number of times via live stream. You're one of the first churches in CMC when churches started having to do it, to do it really well. And so our family enjoyed tuning in. And and I I just said CMC, I do that all the time. Uh, Just recently at Pastors Conference a couple of weeks ago, we changed the name of the, the family of churches that this church is a part of. Our doing business as name was changed to Rosedale Network of Churches. So that's, uh, I I will try to refer to that when I talk about us, but I kind of automatically go back to the initials CMC. But it's so good to be here in person because while I've enjoyed connecting with you, your live stream, um, it's been a long time since we've actually been here in person to worship with you. And each Sunday, about I think it's about 8.55, my phone, little notifi- notification goes off, MCA is live. And it's at my, that's my reminder to pray for you as a congregation each Sunday morning. But I'm so glad to be able to be here and do that, pray for you in person this morning. And I'll do that, but I want to read the scripture for today first. It comes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and 11. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, What a blessing, what a privilege it is to be able to gather in your house this morning with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I thank you for this assembly, this this local expression of your body. And as they worship together and as they work together and as they minister to each other, may they experience the joy of fellowship, the, the love and grace of being a part of the family of God, being brothers and sisters in Christ and the power of the Spirit as they shine the light of Jesus and share your love in this community. God, I pray this morning for your blessing on each and every member of the body here as they do their part. I pray too, Lord, for the church council, for the elders. May you give them your wisdom. May you guide them with your wisdom as they make decisions, as they uh, lead the life of the church. God, I pray that your life and your love and your spirit would flow through the the staff that serves this church. I pray, God, that uh, for the pastoral team, Lord, that your spirit would empower them. 
Lord, I pray for Pastor John and, and, and for Jeremy as well as they provide pastoral, as they shepherd this congregation. Lord, may you encourage them. May you lift them up. I pray for their marriages, God, that they would be strong. I pray for their health. I pray, God, that you would give them health and energy to carry out the work of ministry here. And Lord, most of all, I pray that your name would be great in this congregation. May your power be known. May your love be known. May your name be known and be great. And all of this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. Last year, NBA star Russell Westbrook took a lot of heat when he didn't perform well for the Lakers. Uh, his shooting was particularly bad and suspect, and so it earned him the nickname West Brick. If you're an NBA fan, you, you've heard that, you've followed that. West, his last name was Westbrook. He wasn't shooting well, so it earned him the nickname West Brick. Uh, and again, he's, he's not just a random player. He was the highest paid player <laughs> on a team that had... Uh, had high expectations. So LeBron was on the team. They were the defending NBA champs. He's the highest player, and he was struggling. And I remember watching an interview with him last year, and he spoke into the whole West Brick thing. And here's what he said. When it comes to basketball, I don't mind the criticism of missing and making shots. But the moment where my name is getting shamed, it becomes an issue. West Brick to me is now shaming. It's shaming my name. He went on to talk about his name that he got from his father and grandfather. He went on to talk about his children who are in school and who are proud of the name but now being made fun of for it. Has anyone ever mispronounced or misspelled your name? Kind of irks you, doesn't it? Did you hear about the headstone that had a misspelled name on it? I guess you could call that a grave mistake. Or sometimes your name becomes a verb. <laughs> you know, like you'll say, oh, he really pulled a MacGyver on that one, right? What does it mean when someone says they pulled a Marty, they pulled a Connor, they pulled a Jason? <laughs> I had a college professor one time who said that in his, I think it was his uh, teacher in school, used, used to use his name, which was George, in a derogatory way. Oh, that was a real George move. That doesn't sit real well with us, does it? When our name is shamed, when our name is not used in a way that we think is honoring and appropriate. Now, in today's passage that Brian read for us a few moments ago, we see the importance of God's name. That his name is holy. His name is to be revered. That is, feared, given respect. And so that is what we're going to talk about together today. My name is John. I serve as lead pastor. I am thrilled that you are with us today, whether here, in person, or tuning in online. I'm praying that through our time together, your heart and home grow stronger in the Lord. Well, we're excited to be starting a brand new sermon series today in the book of Malachi. Probably doesn't get a whole lot of billing in your personal Bible reading, but we are going to go to the book of Malachi. You're welcome to start turning there in your Bibles. I hope you brought them with you. This is one of the minor prophets. In fact, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend three weeks going through this very small minor prophet book of Malachi, and we're going to learn to love the things that God loves. That's what Malachi teaches us. 
He teaches us to love the things that God loves. There is a warning here, as we see with, with, with prophecy in the Old Testament, oftentimes there is a sharp warning. And so here's the warning. I'll, I'll give it to us in a nutshell. We're going to spend the next three weeks in this. But, but right up front, it is a warning about God's people growing stagnant in their faith. Having apathy. Not really caring. We could say lukewarm. And so this book then, this message, encourages us, implores us to develop what I would call a fresh faith. That's what we're calling this sermon series. It helps us to grow a fresh passion for God's name. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. A fresh passion for our marriages. That's where we'll be next week. And then a fresh passion for the blessings of God. That will be the third week. God's voice just booms in the book of Malachi. It's only 55 verses, the entire book of Malachi. It's 55 verses. Of those 55, 47 are spoken by God directly. 47 of 55 verses spoken directly from the voice of God. It's a higher percentage of God's voice than any other book in the entirety of Scripture. Little historical context. Uh, This takes place around 430 B.C., this is like after the people of God, the Israelites, have returned from exile in Babylon. And again, uh, if you, if you uh, don't recall, what happened there was God's people sinned, and he allowed them to be conquered and taken over. They were carried by their enemies into Babylon, where they were captives, exiles, for 70 years. But then a remnant returns. They come back to Jerusalem. What they do is they build the temple under the direction of Haggai. Do you remember? Go into the mountains. Bring down the timber. Build my temple. Do you remember that? We preached through that, the book of Haggai. So they've done that. They've come back to Jerusalem. They've built the temple. Then they rebuild the wall around the city under the leadership of Nehemiah. We also preached through that book. So the temple has been rebuilt. The people have returned. The wall has been erected. This is an exciting time for the people of God. It's amazing. It's breathtaking. It is our greatest dreams have come true. We, who were sinful, rebellious, went against God and suffered the consequences, like our enemies literally came in, tore down our temple and our sacred places, carried off the sacred things, took us as captives into Babylon, into enemy territory, and kept us there for 70 years. We've now returned. We've now rebuilt. We are now back at one with God. So this is an exciting time. We are restored, the people are saying. God has been faithful, they're saying. In Nehemiah chapter 8, there's this scene where Ezra reads from the scriptures. He reads from the Bible for six hours straight. And does it say, and the people all took a long nap? Nope. Six hours straight of reading through the scripture, and it describes them as raising their hands, saying amen, and bowing down in worship. Those aren't Mennonite practices of worship. I get that. (laughs) But we can certainly understand when we hear that description that that means there has been a genuine response to the Lord. Saying amen, raising hands in worship, and even bowing down as Ezra read from the scripture for six hours straight. The people who were trying to stop the building of the temple and stop the building of the wall have been silenced. Their captors over in Babylon are no longer holding them in bondage. In fact, according to God's sovereign hand, they were the ones who said, yeah, go ahead. Go back to your people. Go back to your homeland. And now it's as if 
coming down off of that mountaintop, that emotional high of God doing amazing things, and we've been restored, it's as if they face their worst enemy of all, apathy. Stagnation. Lukewarmness. Their faith has grown stale. They are disinterested. Oh, they're not running in rampant rebellion against God. If we, if we look through the book of Malachi, which we will over these next several weeks, we're going to see they're worshiping, they're praying, they're singing, they're offering the sacrifices. So they're not running in rampant rebellion against God. They're not worshiping false idols. But they're doing it all half-heartedly. There's a passage in Isaiah where the Lord says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the warning. That's why the Lord sends Malachi, who says, man, I've been faithful to these people. I've restored them back to their homeland, and they've rebuilt the temple, and now they're going to that temple, and they're offering the sacrifices, but their hearts aren't in it. They don't really care about a vibrant relationship with me. They're just going through the motions. Can we identify with that? Playing church, showing up, looking nice on the outside, but what's happening on the inside? So the Lord sends Malachi and he speaks into it. Let's turn there in our Bibles together. Malachi chapter 1. We will start in verse 1. We're going we're to go through uh, the entirety of chapter 1 today and then the first few verses in chapter 2, Lord willing. Uh, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Probably have a footnote there that says Malachi. In Hebrew, the name Malachi means my messenger. It was a very important message for the people of that day. It's a very important message for us today. So again, even though they're back home, they're going through the motions. They're, they're attending worship and they're paying homage to God. When they look around at their crops and their families and their lives, they're in poverty. They're like, nothing seems to actually go well for us here. Like, nothing grows the way we want it to. The, the weather seems to always come against us. Like, and they're still living in fear about enemies who might come and attack them. So they're facing poverty and famine, fear of attack from neighboring nations. And it's in the middle of this uh, frustration in the middle of this struggle that they actually then do begin to question, well, God's really not all that loving, is he? They go so far as to question the Lord's love. This happens in verse 2 where they say, how have you loved us? And I think we do the same thing when tragedy strikes, when your expectations are not met. We, we, we start to question God's intentions, God's promises, and even God's goodness. We say, does God even care? Where is he? Why is he taking so long? And so God makes it crystal clear that he loves his people. His opening words in the book, so we're in, in verse 2, Malachi chapter 1, I have loved you. These are the opening words of God in the book of Malachi. I have loved you. Now, when the Lord goes on then to say, was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob. Esau I've hated. I've turned his hill country into a wasteland, left his inheritance to the desert jackals. The, the Lord is pointing out he's got different plans for the neighboring nation of Edom. Those would have been the descendants of Esau. 
we don't have time to go through that whole biblical history, but um, we, we are aware of our patriarchs. Um, and again, we're walking through the book of Genesis this year, so you will learn. By the end of this year, we will have preached through them all. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jacob and Esau have split, gone separate ways, and the nation of Edom then. So when, when he refers to Esau, he's talking about his descendants and his people, this nation of Edom. And the Lord makes it clear, like, God has not chosen Edom, <laughs> Like, like, it's not those people, they, it would be a neighboring group, a neighboring nation. I've not chosen them, I'm not going to bless them. In fact, his judgment and anger are going to continually be against them. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we'll rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I'll demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord And then he says, you'll see it with your own eyes and you'll say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. This would have been very countercultural, by the way. The practice of the day is known as henotheism, which is a God assigned to a group of people in a geographic location. And that God didn't have any power or authority or jurisdiction outside of that. Not so for the one true God and the people of Israel. Their God can operate even striking down their enemies in the land of Edom, who is next to them. So that's really what these beginning verses are about, is God affirming his love for his people. When he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, all he's saying there is, it's not Edom that I've chosen. It's not any of these other neighboring groups. I've got sovereign control over them, but it's you. You're the ones that I have chosen especially to love you and care for you. And so we begin to realize that wealth and prosperity, those are not always signs of God's blessings. Difficulty is not always a sign of God's judgment. I mean, that's that's why he allowed them to be taken into captivity in the first place. Consequences so that he might restore them. And I just love there in verse 5 how he says that it's through this process that the eyes of his people are going to be open to see his greatness. We are called to trust in him trusting in him, even when everything around us seems to be falling apart, even when the landscape is bleak. The journey might be bumpy. There are challenges and hardships, but he will see us through. God is affirming that again here in Malachi. Even as he chastises his people, even as he longs to instill within them a fresh faith, He's reminding them, I've been faithful to you, I am unchanging, and I will see you through this. Even though my hand of judgment is upon you and I'm bringing consequences against you, I will be with you and I will see you through. It reminds me of a true story that I heard uh, about a man who was on a long flight. And he noticed that uh, even through turbulence, which was growing more and more frightening, there was this little girl on the flight who seemed unfazed. This is one of those, like, the, the pilot comes on over the loudspeaker and says, we're not going to be able to serve snacks because the fasten your seatbelt sign is on. Please remain seated. Sorry, no beverages on this flight. Uh, we, we, you need to stay fastened in. We need all of our crew to be fastened in as well. And so the passengers seem to be apprehensive. In fact, they, they get more and more alarmed. This, this flight experiences a lot of turbulence. People are starting to panic, and then the storm really breaks loose. And so people are praying, people are scared. The, the plane is just like being pulled up, you know, you're jerked up and then, and then like plummeting down, are we going to crash? But this gentleman continues to notice the little girl on the flight. And it's like she is completely unaffected by the storm, by the turbulence. She's 
got her feet tucked up under her, and she's got a book, and she's reading. And then he sees sometimes she closes her eyes. He wonders, is she daydreaming or is she sleeping? And then the eyes open, and she continues reading, and she straightens her little legs out, getting some blood flow going. It's like worry and fear were not a part of her world, while all of those around her were freaking out. So, praise God, the plane eventually lands. They land safely. People are like, get me out of here. I just want to get off this flight. And the man, he just wants the opportunity to speak with this little child because he's wondering. And so he has the opportunity. This is a true story. He asks her, why were you not afraid? And the little girl says, oh, well, my dad's the pilot, and he's taking me home. What a beautiful picture. Through the bumpiness and through the turbulence, our heavenly father is taking us home. And so we are secure. And we are safe. The trust that that little child has, and and the scriptures call us to have the faith of a little child. That her dad was driving. So everything's going to be fine. Let's continue trusting that the Lord has everything under control. That he is good. He is all-powerful. He loves you. God is working things out for your best interest. And therefore, the only right and fitting and proper response is to have a fresh passion for God's name. Is to recognize, it is you, O God, who has been faithful and who has seen me through and who has allowed me to experience this. Again, the highs and the lows, the goods and the bads, By his loving hand. So a fresh passion for his name. Now, in just this chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2 in the book of Malachi, we see God's name, the Lord. You'll see it in your Bible as all caps, L-O-R-D. That's the divine name of Yahweh. 19 times. 19 times in this first chapter and then the few verses of of chapter 2. And you'll see the, the reference to my name seven times. It's all over. It permeates this passage that God's name is to be revered, that our passion should be for the name of the Lord. Uh, There's a college professor by the name of R.C. R.C. Oliver, and he uh, describes the the struggles of growing up with a name like R.C. So he just has initials for his name. And he's always trying to convince people it's not initials that stand for something, like my parents literally named me R.C. That's my name. So he's, he goes to get his driver's license, and, and they reject him. They say, you can't use initials. We need your name. So he fills out the paperwork, and he writes R, and then he put like a little dash and wrote only, and then C, only, and then his last name, which is Oliver. And so he was so pleased when they approved it, and they sent him his license. Like, oh, great. I finally. Then he noticed he couldn't help but chuckling when he saw his name, which was Ron Lee Conley Oliver. <laughs> Uh, we need a fresh passion for the name of the Lord. And so here's what I want to do with the rest of the time that we've got remaining. We're going to walk through the rest of this passage. And I want to point out or share with us three ways to develop a fresh passion for the Lord and for his name. And the first is to respond to God's love with a heart of praise. A heart of praise. Again, Israel had become lukewarm. They weren't honoring God. They were giving really second-rate sacrifices. 
uh, in their marriages. They weren't giving their best. Uh, we'll, we'll find that in chapter 3. They weren't bringing the whole tithe. Sorry, that's in chapter 2. The marriage thing is in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 3, then, they're not bringing the whole tithe. And so the Lord says they're robbing him. And yet he still loves them. He affirms his love for them. Again, what are the first words out of God's mouth in the book of Malachi? I have loved you. He still loves them. Israel's love for God had waned, but God's love for them had not. And God's love is always like that. You and I can attest to that this morning. It's the same for us. Our love for God has waned, and his love for us has remained constant. It's eternal. It's unending. It's unchanging. Charles Spurgeon once said, God soon turns from his wrath, but he never turns from his love. And so what do we do? We lift up a heart of praise. We thank God. We respond by saying, Lord, you've been merciful. You've forgiven me. You've restored me. You guys remember the New Testament story about the woman who comes into the house where Jesus is and she anoints him with oil? And the scriptures say, Luke chapter 7, says she even gets down on the floor and she uses her hair to, like, clean his feet and dry his feet. She, she comes in with this alabaster jar full of expensive perfume. She breaks the jar and uses it to anoint Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So your praise, your grateful uh, heart of worship and thankfulness to the Lord is in direct relation with your view of God. I think we talked about this earlier in the year, didn't we? Big God, big worship. Small God, small worship. Chances are, if you're lukewarm in your faith, if you've fallen prey just like the people of God had in Malachi, you don't have a heart of praise. You're not thanking him and honoring him and worshiping him and singing to him and telling others about him. You want to develop a fresh passion for God's name? Start thanking him. Lift up a heart of praise. I'm not talking about just on Sundays, friends. <laughs> yes, we corporately sing. We, we have, what, 20 minutes of, of singing on Sunday mornings? It's one of the highlights of my week. I love joining with you each and every week and singing our lungs out to the Lord. And when we do that, I do want to encourage us. That should be heartfelt and sincere. Don't just pay lip service to God. Don't just say, oh, I'm surrendering all to you. I'll build my life upon you and then go out and do whatever you want. So, yes, absolutely, it's the corporate worship. But really what I'm talking about is life lived. Don't go to your job that God has blessed you with, that allows you to, to have your existence and your substance, and complain and grumble about the work that God has given you to do. That slaps God in the face. Don't grumble about the blessings that God has given you. Wake up every day with a grateful heart. Like this woman, this sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Her many sins have been forgiven. And I stand here to say, my many sins have been forgiven. And I hope that each of you would say the same. I'm a great sinner. I'm chief of sinners, Paul says. <laughs> he, try, he, he likes to one-up people, doesn't he? The apostle Paul, it's, it's like he's always one-upping you. He's like, he's, no, I'm chief. Our many sins have been forgiven. 
And it's when we recognize that that we live in grateful response. We want a fresh passion for God's name. Respond to his great love by lifting up a heart of praise. The second is to respond to God's correction with repentance. So again, Malachi, really any of the Old Testament prophets, (laughs) it's not a feel-good book. It's really not. It's oftentimes, the, the prophets are oftentimes filled with stories and messages of God's hand of rebuke. But if your faith has grown stale, if you know you've fallen short, you've missed the mark, you've messed up, you've sinned, it's time to hear that rebuke from God. Stop blaming God. Humble yourself before him. So God sends Malachi to his people with this message. He sent Malachi not to affirm what they were doing, not to congratulate them. And again, if you were to look at the the outward appearance, these people were keeping up with all the religious practices. He sends Malachi not to congratulate them, to say, hey, you've really been checking everything off of your religious to-do list. Like you showed up in the temple for worship and you brought that lamb in and, and you slaughtered it and you said those prayers. He sends Malachi not to congratulate them, but to bring a rebuke. Why? Because he had a goal of them repenting. A, a sharp warning here to say, you've grown lukewarm. It's time to wake up. It's time for something fresh. It's time to turn from your wicked ways. And of course, true repentance, we all know this, just in the context of interpersonal relationships, is not just saying, I'm sorry. Don't you get sick of that? When people continually say to you, oh, sorry. Show me you're sorry. True repentance, we all know this. True repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. True repentance is changing your ways, demonstrating through your actions. This woman from Luke chapter 7, she had a reputation She was known as a woman who had many sins. She was a sinful person. She had lived a sinful life. That was what she wore on her sleeve. A scarlet letter, if you will. But when she came in, she didn't say, sorry. She got her hands on costly perfume. It was probably the most expensive thing that she had ever been near. In it could have been all of her hopes and dreams and future. And what did she do? She broke it and poured it out for Christ. She demonstrated repentance. She didn't just say, sorry. Christ wants all of us. He wants all of our treasure. He wants all of our talent. He wants all of our time. When we come to him, Like the people in Malachi, he doesn't accept our offerings, our praises. He makes that clear here. Like like they've become lazy in their worship practices. They're bringing him animals that are lame and blind and tainted and diseased. Look at verse 8. We're in Malachi chapter 1. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. This is the Lord speaking to his people. He says, would you take that same little sheep and, t- and, and present it before your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? What hypocrites we are when we pay greater honor to someone on earth than to he who is in heaven. And I think we're all guilty of this. 
I pay greater honor to the president, to the mayor, to the governor, to my teacher, to my coach, to that person who's got the clout and the notoriety than I do to Almighty God. And that's what we're doing when we're playing church. I want to make that clear. That, that's the criticism and the rebuke for the people of God. He says, come to enjoy fellowship and relationship with me. Delight in my presence. Be shaped and formed. And that's what we do each and every Sunday. That's what we do throughout the week. That's why we're designed it with core groups, is, is circles and life on life and discipleship and friendship and relationship and caring for one another that we would be shaped and formed even more into the likeness of Jesus so it's very possible for us to honor God with our lips and yet be far from him in our hearts the right response when God rebukes us convicts us and for some of us maybe that's right here right now today the right response is repentance oh God forgive me And not just an I'm sorry, but my ways will change. Of course, the Lord speaks to this, and and some of us have probably had this on our minds as we've been hearing the word this morning from Revelation chapter 3. The Lord says, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Let me read that again. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19. The Lord says, those whom I love. He's reaffirming again, I have loved you. And it's in that heart of a father who cares so much for his children that he brings a rebuke and a correction. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Look at the next part. So be earnest and what? Be earnest and, say it again. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. How sad when the children of God miss out on the beauty and joy of the life God has created for us. And in verse 20, there, what a beautiful picture of a banquet and a feast and fellowship and breaking bread together that we were made for God's glory. We were made to know him and love him. And so when he lovingly rebukes us for our selfishness, for our pride, for our half-heartedness, for caring more about what the person across the street thinks than what Almighty God thinks, we ought to repent. You want a fresh faith for the name of the Lord? Repent of your wrongs and turn back to him. Okay, I have a third key for us this morning. We're talking about developing a fresh passion for the Lord. Respond with a heart of praise to his love. Respond with repentance to his correction. And then finally, respond to God's power with reverence. Interesting thing in the book of Malachi, the Lord is referred to as Lord Almighty many, many times, not each and every time, but this is one of the most common names for God in the Bible. We see it over 300 times, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty. Some translations, depending on which English translation you use, 
uh, Lord Almighty, that's NIV. Other translations will say Lord of hosts. ESV uses that, several others. So you're, depending on your translation, might say Lord of hosts or even Lord of heaven's armies, uh, which I kind of like that one as well. The battle belongs to him. God's like, if I can defeat the Egyptians, oh yeah, and the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Assyrians and any other of your enemies, then uh, I can help you as well. I can help you win your daily battles. He is the Lord Almighty. He is all-powerful. We can rely on his strength to carry us through. And we should stand in awe, in, in reverence to the great power of God. And so we're in Malachi chapter 1. Let's go to verse 13. Actually, end of verse 13. When you bring injured, lame, diseased animals, offer them as sacrifices, should I not accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Again, we're kind of repeating some of this. Like, he's not not accepting what they're offering. They're not following wholeheartedly into into worship. And then verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. Like, how dare you come with this lukewarm, half-hearted, stagnant faith, puny offering, when I am to be feared? You don't come into God's presence in that way, the Lord is saying. My name is to be feared, he says, held in the highest honor. And yet, we hear God's name used in all sorts of ways and manners, don't we? We hear his name used in vain, used as if it were some sort of cuss word. Or when something is very shocking uh, as an exclamation, using God's name. I tell my children, if you're not talking about God or to God, then don't use his name. Talking about him or to him, then don't use his name. That is a misuse of his name. And what does the scripture tell us in Exodus 20 and verse 7? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Malachi came with a harsh rebuke, and yet he did so in love. And part of what he's doing is, part of what God is doing to his people is, he's realigning them to say, I am Yahweh Sabaoth. I am the God of heaven's armies. Don't bring me second rate. Bring me the best. Why? Because I am the great king. My name is to be feared among the nations. I do want to venture into chapter 2 uh, before, we, before we close and conclude this morning. So let's, let's venture into chapter 2 here. It's really interesting because God specifically speaks to the priests. They, they of course, would have been responsible. So under, under their system of, of worship and religious activity, the priests would have been responsible for the sacrifices and all of the Uh, the sacred things and the way they worship. Priests were in charge of that. So he says, and now you, my priests, this warning is for you. So this is in Malachi chapter two, verses one and two. If you don't listen, if you don't resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I'll send a curse on you and I'll curse your blessings. Yes, he admits, I've already cursed them because you've not resolved to honor me. And then into verse four, and you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Now, again, remember, Levi was the tribe that God chose to be the priestly tribe. Uh, they were designated as priests. Like, they weren't given, when, when the 12 tribes were given their inheritance and their portion of land, Levi wasn't given any portion of land. 
God was to be their inheritance, and they were to minister before him. And so when he talks about Levi, he's referring to the priests, like that group of people that were selected specifically for these. And in in the next verses, which are 5 and 6, there is a description of what God has designed the priests in the Old Testament for. But before I read it, before we go there, and we'll talk about this, it, it is a beautiful picture for each of us today. Because we're the priesthood of believers. You, you are a minister in the kingdom of God. You, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a beautiful picture for each of us of a fresh faith walking in peace with God. So Malachi 2, verses 5 and 6. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. I gave them to him. This called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. You want to develop a fresh faith? Respond to the all-powerful God with reverence. We heard it all over that passage. He called for reverence. He revered me. He stood in awe of my name. Wow. What a powerful description of God's heart for us, that we would trust him, that we would walk in covenant relationship with him, that we would revere him, stand in awe of his name, that true instruction would be in our mouths, nothing false on our lips, to walk with the Lord Almighty in peace and uprightness. And then, did you catch that at the very end then? To see many others repent and believe and turn from their sins and hear the good news of Jesus. Like that is a beautiful picture of you and I recognizing, God, you are all powerful and I am just in awe of what you are able to do. And so here am I. I can't save anybody. I can't forgive anybody. But I've been forgiven. And I can just share my story and my testimony. God's been good to me. God's forgiven me. Even when I mess up, even when I grow stale in my faith, even when I'm playing church, God has a word of correction that says, it's time to change. It's time to turn your heart back to me. And then, in that place, malleable, shaped more into the image of Christ, you have peace and you walk in uprightness and there's nothing false on your lips. And then others see that and enter into relationship with God because of it. The Bible says very clearly in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. It's only in the name of the Lord. It's like a strong tower, Proverbs tells us. And what do the righteous do? They run into it and they are safe. Why is God's name alone to be feared? Why is it only one name under heaven by which we may be saved? Because it's only at his name that demons flee. It's only at his name that mountains move. It's only at his name that the heavens and the earth and the entire universe, the cosmos, are formed and filled. It's only in his name that there is salvation, that there is hope for eternity. So let's praise him for his love. Let's repent under his hand of correction and let's respond to God's power with a fresh passion for his name. Let's pray together.
O God, our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the work that you have begun in us. Oh Lord, you've planted seeds of the gospel in our hearts. For many, you've given us a godly heritage. And so, Lord, I pray against stagnation and apathy. I pray against being lukewarm. Lord, we do not want to play church. Lord, we do not want to honor you with our lips, but have hearts that are far from you. And so, Lord, we turn to you today that your Holy Spirit would blow through like a rushing wind. To cleanse and, yes, inspire and renew and infuse hope and life and vitality. Lord, that we want to have peace and we want to walk with you and delight in your presence. And to fear your great name. And so, God, would you forgive us for the times where we've offered you second best. We haven't sought your kingdom first. We've grumbled about your blessings and we've grown lukewarm. I pray, Lord, you would instill within us a fresh passion for your name, to revere you, to honor you, and then to point others to you as well, Lord, because we know that you and you alone are mighty to save. So we pray that you would do this for your name, for your honor and your glory. And we pray it all in the precious and most powerful name, the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.